The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Don't you think that if you're going to devote your life to something, you need it to be both true and beautiful? If you're gonna devote your life to something, you need it to be true and beautiful. First of all, you need it to be true. Does anybody really wanna devote their lives to something that's just a myth or a fairy tale? No way, it won't be worth it. If you don't believe that it's true, uh, there's no way you're gonna sacrifice for it. You'll, you'll quit quickly when it no longer serves your purposes. Um, and if it's not actually true, it won't meet your needs. It won't, it won't be there for you. So to devote your life to something, you need it to be true. But secondly, you also need it to be beautiful. To devote your life to something, it has to, it has to thrill your heart. It has to win your affections, your emotions. It has to uh, consume your mind. It has to give you real hope for the future. Even if you believe something is true, you don't think it's beautiful, you won't be devoted to it. It'll just be a burden. Uh, it won't own you, it won't grab you. So don't you agree? To devote your life to something, what do you need? You need it to be both true and beautiful. Now let's back up here, here we are, we're all at church. Let's be honest, church isn't always considered to be full of truth or full of beauty. Number one, you could say, boy, there's, there's all these miracles, especially this resurrection thing. I'm not sure I can actually believe in that. What if it's just a myth that might not be true? You won't wanna devote your life to Jesus. Or secondly, and it's, um, it's disease, it's a pain, it's, it's harmful. Uh, many of us have experienced, um, from religious folks or, or church folks or even other Christians, the pain of when, when Christians are self-righteous or hypocritical. And Christianity just feels like a, a straitjacket or a, something to control you. Uh, it feels like this thing where somebody can feel like they're better than somebody else. And you're like, I don't want any part of that. Why? It's... That's not beautiful. There's no beauty to it. So you might say, hey, listen, um, there's no truth or no beauty here, and let's, let's move on to something else. There must be something else to devote myself to. But can I just uh, raise, raise an objection or raise a question that if, if we're looking at things like that, it might be like looking at the, the backside of, say, um, a piece of artwork maybe like a tapestry. And if you're looking at the backside, what are you seeing? It's all furry <laughs> and chaotic and full of knots. And you'd be like, I don't know what the big deal is here. This is ugly, let's, let's go to a different piece of art. And then somebody might say, hey, turn this thing over. And you see, oh, wow, it's amazing, it's beautiful, it's, it's complex, this is incredible. I wanna propose that if you're, if you're thinking about Christianity or it's Christianity's claims, the place to look first, the place to look ultimately is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is uh, the fundamental issue, and here's why. Christianity rises and falls on nothing else really other than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because the fact of the matter is he claimed, he predicted he would die and then rise again. If he did this, well, anyway, which is, these claims, they just, 
they add so much intensity to who Jesus is, don't they? So for instance, if he's, just a good, if he's a good teacher, but then he claims he's going to die and rise, but he never rises, how good is his teaching? Well, it's no good at all, right? What is he if he claims he's gonna die and then rise from the dead, and then he doesn't do it? He's a liar, it's not true. It's not worth devoting yourself to him. But if he is actually the son of God, who died and rose from the dead, what does that say about what we owe him? He's no longer just a good teacher who gives advice. He becomes Lord and King and God who deserves our hearts, our lives. And so really, the resurrection makes Christianity an all or nothing thing. It's all or nothing. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, there's no truth and no beauty here. If Jesus did rise from the dead, it dominates everything, it changes everything. And so we're gonna look this morning for a few moments at John's account of that Sunday morning. John's eyewitness account of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And as we hear his words, we're gonna see his very purpose is to do these two basic things. He wants to show us that it's reasonable to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. In fact, he wants to show us that there's no possible other conclusion to explain the reality of what happened and the rise of the early church. It's true, John is going to tell us, he rose. But the second thing we're going to see is not just that it's true that he rose. John is going to show us it's beautiful. It's ultimately beautiful for two major reasons. One is the personal grace we receive nowhere else but in the resurrection. And second, the ultimate hope. The ultimate hope that we find nowhere else but in the resurrection. So this is what we wanna do. We wanna see, it's rational to believe it, it's true, Jesus rose. And secondly, we wanna see this, the ultimate beauty that's found here in the personal grace of God for us so we find nowhere else but in the resurrection and the ultimate hope that we find nowhere else but in the resurrection. So I'm gonna ask you to follow along with me in your Bibles, John 20, I hope you'll follow along. We start here in the middle of a story. Um, and the first thing we see is that the disciples who loved Jesus were very slow to believe. The disciples who loved Jesus were very slow to believe. So here, first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, when did she come to the tomb? Early, it's still dark. It's still dark. And uh, if you're reading this gospel for the first time, you know Jesus said, hey, I'm gonna die and I'm gonna rise. So you might think, well, why would she go to the tomb early? Because it's still dark. She's one of his followers, right? What must she be thinking? Hey, maybe he rose from the dead. So she's running there. She's gonna get there. She gets there, and she sees the tomb open. And what does she say? Ha-ha, it's just as I thought. He's alive. Is that what happens? That's the opposite of what happens. She gets to the tomb while it was still dark. She sees the stone has been taken away. What is she thinking? 
Well, she runs back to Simon Peter and probably John. That's the disciple who Jesus loved. And she says to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've laid him. What does she assume when she sees the empty tomb? Somebody stole the body. Somebody stole the body. Why would she think that? Well, come on, everybody knows people don't rise from the dead. Ladies and gentlemen, your first skeptic. He told her he was gonna die and rise from the dead. It's not even on her mind in the realm of possibility. She runs, she runs back home, who does she tell? Peter and John, these are, these are like the, the leaders of the apostles. Now surely they, why are they sleeping in that day? Because they know Jesus rose from the dead, they don't have anything to worry about. Is that their attitude? I wanna know why they're not there. I mean, you know people will sleep overnight in tents so they can be the first in to Walmart on Black Friday. <laughs> people will stay overnight in a tent for Star Wars tickets, right? Or, or the next iPhone. Where are these guys? Do they say to Mary, well, of course, he rose from the dead, just as he said. No, where are they? They run to the tomb. They don't believe it either. First thing to see, hey, if this is a mythological story and we want everybody to see how we know the truth about God, especially in the ancient times, do you think they're gonna write a mythological story about their very leaders, the first witnesses, and are they gonna include in it they had absolutely no clue and no assumption that Jesus would rise at all? They were doubters. Look what N.T. Wright says. He's a famous historian, a theologian, N.T. Wright says, these stories exhibit exactly the surface tension which we associate not with tales artfully told by people eager to sustain a fiction and therefore anxious to make everything look right, no, but with the hurried, puzzled accounts of those who have seen with their own eyes something which took them horribly by surprise and with which they have not yet fully come to terms. This is historical reality. Next thing to see, starting in verse five. John gets there, he peeks in, and what does he see? Linen cloths lying there in the tomb. Now you'll remember, this is a, a rich man's tomb. It's not a tomb for a common criminal. They just thrown that kind of a body in a pit, never find anything again. This is a rich man's tomb. And so it was very special, it was dug out of the rock. So it's like a little, a little closet inside the stone. You could roll a large stone in front of it so you could preserve everything just so. Another thing to know is that, and we saw it in the last chapter of John, uh, Jewish tradition, when somebody important to you was buried, we would wrap the body in probably 75 pounds of cloth and expensive spices. It's a way to honor their memory, preserve the body a little bit. So Jesus' body, he's all wrapped up. He's all gauzed up. And so they get in there and they look in this tomb and what do they see? A bunch of cloths, a bunch of wrappings, and what's missing? No body. That's weird. John looks in. What? Simon Peter follows him, and I, I wanna show you something specifically. Look at verse six. Simon Peter came following him. He went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths there. Now, uh, I think this translation could have helped us a little bit. John looked in and he saw the linen cloths. 
The Greek word there is just normal word for saw. In verse six, when Peter saw the linen cloth there and the, faith cloth, the face cloth folded up, that word there is theoreo. And the only reason I give you the Greek pronunciation of it is because it might sound familiar. What is it? Theoreo. The, the, theory. That means he saw and the wheels started turning. Huh. And you start piecing things together. Wait a second. What's their first assumption? Jesus is not there. That means somebody stole the body. And then you look in and you see all the wrappings that would have been around his body in the tomb, but no body. Now try to put that together. If thieves came to steal the body, which is grave stealing was common, they had to make it a capital offense, it was so common, because you could go and you could find some, some wealth, valuable stuff in a rich man's tomb. Even the claws and the spices might be worth something. So if thieves are gonna steal the body, are they going to take the time to like, I mean, how do you do that, right? Stand him up and just go around and unwrap 75 pounds of cloth and spices? Who stealing a body is going to take the time to do that and then leave the little head cloth folded on the side? That's why he's doing theoreo. Wait, 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 wait. Thieves didn't steal his body. I know the Romans and the Jewish authorities wouldn't steal a body. Why would they not steal the body? because they knew what Jesus said, that he might rise from the dead. They had soldiers around the tomb, as we see in other accounts of the Gospels. Those soldiers are now gone in this Gospel. They don't want the body stolen. The disciples didn't steal the body. They're too afraid to leave the room. Who stole the body? Well, you do the theoreo. Nobody stole the body. There's no evidence that anybody stole the body. It doesn't work, it doesn't fit the facts. Do you see? In verse, seven, in verse eight, then John, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, he also went in with Peter, and it says he saw and believed. It's starting to make sense. Oh, wait a second. There's only one answer. He's starting to get it. But you know, an empty tomb won't be enough. An empty tomb wouldn't be enough. What's the only thing that's gonna convince these people? Jesus is alive. They're gonna have to talk to him. They're gonna have to see him. And as we're gonna see in a moment, the first person to get to talk to the resurrected Jesus Christ is a lady named Mary Magdalene. A lady named Mary Magdalene. Now what do we know about her? Number one, she's a woman. Now why is that interesting for a a first century historical account. Here's why it's interesting. I don't mean to offend offend anyone, but here's the reality. First century, court of law, especially a Jewish one, a woman's testimony is not valid enough to even count. Second class citizen, her testimony doesn't mean anything. Second thing to take into account, we know from the Gospel of Luke It says there that Jesus had healed Mary and delivered her because she had been filled with seven demons. Now even biblically, seven can have like a symbolic, holistic kind of meaning. And let's let's just put it like this. That means she was messed up. She was messed up. She was emotionally messed up. She was mentally troubled. Who knows the details of her past to get her to that place? 
but she was an absolute wreck. And now you see why she's the first one to the tomb and why she cares so much. How does she feel about Jesus? She loves him more than she can say. He's meant everything to her. He's changed everything for her. But back to this idea of, is the resurrection real? Is it true? Okay, say we had, in America we like, we like drafts. And I, yes, we do like drafts of beer. That's not what I meant here. Anybody a sports fan? Come on, a couple, okay. <laughs> NFL draft. The NFL draft is coming up, okay? NBA draft, we love, uh, even, I like the baseball draft. It's full of hope, you pick your favorite players, okay, whatever. Um, say all the religious leaders of the world got together and they were gonna have a draft and they were gonna pick out of all the great, righteous, brave, charismatic, amazing people out there in world history, they were gonna have a draft to pick who gets to be the first witness to the most epic event in history. And they're gonna have a draft. And I wanna ask you, according to first world standards, or first century standards, a troubled woman, deeply troubled woman like Mary Magdalene, who's gonna pick her first? Or, Who's gonna pick her at all? What round is she going in? She's not getting picked, ever. There was a second century Greek philosopher who was a huge skeptic towards Christianity. And he actually wrote a, a book, his name was uh, Celsus. He wrote a book trying to disprove Christianity. And I wanna give you a quote on one of his major themes as to why no one would ever believe Christianity. This is what he said. How can anyone expect rational men to listen to the testimony of a hysterical female? Now for us, we're like, whoa. Some of us are about ready to lynch this guy. Don't worry about it, he's already dead. <laughs> but it, now you need to do what Peter did. You're hearing this, you're seeing this. Remember that word, theoreo? You need to think. You need to put it all together, put the evidence together. Why would the disciples choose to have a troubled woman like Mary as the first witness of the risen Jesus? Because it had, it, it, that claim did the opposite of what they would have been looking for in their context. It made people less likely to believe their story based on the assumptions of the day. Why would they include it? Newsflash. Because it's true. That's why. That's the only reason to explain it. That's the only theory that works. It's true. She was the first witness I gotta give you another quote from N.T. Wright. I'm just scratching the surface on evidence for the resurrection. I like how N.T. Wright says this. Again, he's a famous historian. The early Christians did not invent the empty tomb, he says, and the meetings or sightings of the risen Jesus. Nobody was expecting this kind of thing. No kind of conversion experience would have invented it, no matter how guilty or how forgiven they felt, no matter how many hours they poured over the scriptures. To suggest otherwise is to stop doing history and enter into a fantasy world of our own. Jesus rose from the dead. It's true. That's what John's trying to tell you. 
Have you ever heard of a guy named Charles Coulson? Uh, if you've been in the Christian circles, he was kind of a prominent writer and thinker, um, 90s. He uh, was a member of the Nixon administration. And you remember uh, what got Nixon in trouble? Watergate. Colson was part of it. He actually went to prison for a while because of his participation in Watergate. Later, uh, I think it was actually through prison, he converted, gave his life to Jesus. He has a very interesting take on the resurrection. Look at what he says. Colson says, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How's that? Well, here's how. Because 12 men, and he's thinking of the apostles, had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Each one was beaten, tortured, stoned, or put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. <laughs> Look what he says. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and we couldn't keep the lie for three weeks. <laughs> You're telling me 12 apostles could keep the lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Jesus rose from the dead. Okay, maybe it's true. Next question. Is it beautiful? Is the resurrection beautiful? I'm gonna be down at verse 11. So we left Mary standing outside the tomb, weeping, who can blame her? A movement she gave her life to seemed over. Her leader and her friend who gave her hope was shamed and slaughtered publicly. She goes to the tomb, she thinks the body's stolen. That's a bad weekend, right? That's a bad weekend. Then you have this amazing account Verse 12, she saw two angels in white. First of all, in 11, she stoops to look into the tomb. So now it's her turn. She's gonna look in. And who does she see in the tomb? According to the text, two angels. Now each one of the gospels has angels there announcing Jesus is alive. And what do they say to her in verse 13? Woman, why are you weeping? I think it's somewhat hilarious that she doesn't go, Angels, how did you get in here? Or maybe something like, why are you asking me while I'm weeping? I don't know, it doesn't, they need sensitivity training or something. What does she say to them? They've taken away my Lord, I don't know where he is. She's, she either doesn't know that they're angels or she doesn't, she doesn't care that they're angels. She, she has a one-track mind, what does she wanna know? Where's Jesus? And what does she still think about him? He's dead. Where's the body? Then she turns around and she sees someone. She doesn't know who it is. What does he ask her? Verse 15. Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Who does she think it is? Supposing him to be a gardener, she says to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell, tell me where you've laid him and I'll take him away. What happens in verse 16? I think this is beautiful. Jesus said to her, what does he say? 
Mary. Who knew who first? Jesus knew her. Jesus knew her. And when he called her name, what happened? He's alive. And she turns and says to him, Rabboni, which, and the translation could help you a little bit. It doesn't just mean teacher. It means my teacher. My teacher. That's what she called him. She loved him so much. She loved him so much. What do you see here? Well, we've talked about this already. What does Mary Magdalene have on her um, worldly success resume? Great job, perfect family, lots of money, um, has it all together, always gets it right, no skeletons in the closet. What does she have on her, I'm going to prove myself so I can be good enough before God. What does she have on her resume? Nothing. She's the one no one wants. She's the one who by all the standards of this world has nothing going for her. And who's the one Jesus picks first? It's her. And it shows us the most beautiful thing about the gospel. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves me, not based on how good I've been, how religious I've been, having it all together, not based on if I'm young enough, old enough, beautiful enough, smart enough, religious enough, accomplished enough, not based on any deed I could do, turn anything before him. Based on what? Well, it reminds us, look back in verse nine. John remembers the mindset of the disciples and he throws out this phrase. He says, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that Jesus must rise from the dead. The last two chapters, if you've been with us, John 18 and 19 were all about how he must die on the cross. And John 20 is all about how he must rise from the dead. What does that mean? He must according to the scriptures. It means this. This has been God's plan from the very beginning to reconcile undeserving sinners to himself because he loves those who don't deserve it. He is a gracious God and this is his plan. Jesus had to die on a cross. He's the one who lived a perfect life. You know, when you stand before God, and we're all going to, and our, our lives are measured, what standard is he going to use? And will you meet that standard? You know, one standard we like to use is just you know, kind of the nice person standard, the better than Hitler standard. <laughs> you ever use that one for yourself? You know, your conscience bugs you. You're like, I got that wrong. I said something wrong. I lied. I betrayed but hey, at least I'm not into genocide. (laughs) Do you think God's gonna use the better than Hitler standard? (laughs) 
No, unfortunately, we see God's standard in his law. Ten Commandments are a great summary of it. I'm always nailed by thou shalt not lie. Because, I mean, come on, in the scheme of things, isn't that kind of like on the low end of the bad sins we've committed? But God's an honest God, a God of integrity, and most of the time when we lie, we're trying to protect ourselves, we're scheming, we're being idolatrous. Lying's bad, and he says, don't do it. Anybody in here ever lied? And those who are saying you haven't, well, you, you just did. <laughs> so if God uses his holy standard, and that's a little one, right? If God uses his holy standard to see if, if we are fit to be in his presence, I'm not gonna make it. I am not gonna be close to making it. Nobody is, except for Jesus. He lived a perfect life. He loved his father, he loved his neighbor with every thought, with every breath. He did it right, and the beauty of the gospel is he wants to give that standing, that perfection to you. So that when you stand before God and the books are open and all oh, what I've thought and what I've said, oh man. And Jesus said, my life for hers. My life for his. And the father looks at that and says, perfect. Jesus lived a perfect life for us. Jesus died on the cross for us. Look, we all care about justice. We all care about justice. If somebody hits you in the chin and steals your wallet, you want, you want righteousness to be done. But then you know what happens, you point the finger, three get pointed back at you. I deserve justice for what I've done. I deserve it. God is just, how's he gonna, how's he gonna love people who deserve his justice? Well this is the beauty, the trait of the gospel. Jesus is the substitute who on the cross, he took the just punishment I deserve for me, in my place, so that Everything God would have against me as a righteous judge is wiped clean. It's forgiven, totally forgiven. Can you imagine? And what's the proof that the cross did all of that? The resurrection. He rose from the dead, which means he has real, personal grace for lost, hurting sinners just like me, just like you, have you heard him call your name? Everyone who's a Christian in here would say, I heard it. And I hope some of you are hearing it right now. Isn't Jesus' love for Mary Magdalene beautiful? Where else are you gonna get this in the entire world? Grace, love you don't deserve. You know, the world pressures, you gotta do, 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 be, 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 accomplished to finally make it. You have to earn it. Every religion, what's it want you to do? You gotta do, 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 be, 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 to finally make it. If we live life like that, what happens to those of us who think we've made it? We get prideful, and it gives us a reason to demean everybody else who hasn't made it. What happens to those of us who think we haven't made it, we'll never make it? We're insecure, we're unloved, we're left hanging out to dry, there's nothing for us. And then Jesus is totally different and flips it all upside down. He says you don't have to do to make it. He says you could never do it right to make it. He says, I did it for you, I made it, let me bring you in based on what I've done. 
And so you don't do, do, do to make it with Jesus. You trust him. And then the reason you want to live differently is because you've already made it. You're already perfectly loved in him. Even though you're flawed, even though you've messed up. Can you hear the beauty in that? God's personal grace loving you as you are right now in Christ. It's beautiful. The second thing that's beautiful about the resurrection is the ultimate hope, and we'll end here. Jesus says this funny phrase in verse 17. He says, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. You've heard of the ascension. What's the ascension? It's when, it's when Jesus goes, goes to heaven. We almost don't know how to say this. Is Jesus saying, hey, don't hang on to me. I gotta do my levitation thing and <laughs> you're holding me down. <laughs> it can't mean that. Uh, here's what some good commentators think it means. She's probably hanging on to him like, I don't wanna lose you ever again. I don't wanna lose you ever again. And he's saying, you don't need to worry. You're never gonna lose me, ever again. Because when Jesus ascends to the Father, the idea is that he's now reigning at the right hand of God. And his eye is with you, and by the power of his Holy Spirit, his presence is with you, and his promises are yours in the scriptures, and he's given us a church family to live this out together. You're not alone, you'll never be alone. You have him now, and you're gonna have him forever. It's hope. The most powerful hope there is. Look what he says. I'm ascending to my father. And then what does he say? Your father. What has Jesus done for us in his death and resurrection? For all who repent of their sins and trust in Christ, who is God to you now? Is he firstly judge? He's what? First line of the Lord's Prayer. Our? Our father. He's bought your adoption. Your adoption. The struggle for significance is over. If I just make it here, I'll be somebody. No, finally, Jesus has made it. I am somebody. Who are you? Who am I? I'm a child of God. I'm loved. And Jesus reigns for me. And you know what this means for the future? Jesus endured evil. Why? He's going to undo it when he returns. What's the proof? He rose. Jesus endured suffering and shame to undo it. When he comes back, he will. What's the proof? He rose. Jesus endured justice to undo it. What's the proof? He rose. Jesus endured death to undo it. What's the proof? He rose. Do we have hope for the future? This is the only reason out there to believe that good wins. Have you watched the news? Have you seen what's going on in the world, in our own hearts, in our relationships? What is there, is there any real reason to believe that good, beauty, justice wins? I have one. I think it's a pretty good one. You know what it is? Jesus rose. This is ultimate hope. We will rise as well. 
good wins. I, I don't just believe the resurrection of Jesus is true and beautiful. I believe the resurrection of Jesus is the only reason to believe that beauty is true at all. What if the skeptics are right? What if we're just here by accident? You're just a blip on the screen. You're just an evolved accident. You have the significance of a mosquito. You might feel justice, beauty, and love. Is it actually real or true? Or is all this just a meaningless, bad joke? It's a joke. Unless Jesus rose. What do we have here, folks? Truth and beauty. Ultimate truth, ultimate beauty. So how should we respond? Well, we see what Mary Magdalene did, verse 18. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he said these things to her. She believes, she's in, she's seen him, she's devoted. And I said earlier, to devote your life to something, you need it to be true and beautiful. And I hope you've seen a glimpse, you've seen a glimpse here about the resurrection. Is it true that he rise? It's true. Is it beautiful? God's grace for sinners and ultimate hope in the resurrection. There's no beauty like it. So what should you do? What should I do? John 20, 31, John says this. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What's John urging you to do through this account? Believe. It's true. It's beautiful. This is real life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you're amazing. Your life, your character, your teaching, your resurrection. I pray that the reality of who you are and what you've done would be landing on us and the beauty of your love and your grace would be landing on us and we would be overjoyed like Mary was. Our teacher who loves us is alive. Lord, fill us with your love, your hope, and I pray even against all fear, Lord, we'd see this is true. We devote ourselves to you. We devote ourselves to you. Only you are worthy of our trust. Show us these things. Move us toward you, Lord God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.fountainoflifefellowship.com.